Good morning once again. If you have your Bibles, Mike is already passing ones out. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and Mike will get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Second Peter, chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 9 this morning. I just thought of something. Gary reminded it to me just now that uh, we have our, our men's prayer breakfast is always the third Saturday of, of every month. And this coming Saturday is the third Saturday of every month. But we have our men's work day. So we won't be having the men's prayer breakfast this Saturday. Instead, we'll be having the work day. So I'll be out there. So we'll, we'll um, maybe... Yeah, we'll pray there. There you go. <laughs> prayer breakfast. No food, but uh, you get it. Prayer breakfast. All right, anyway. Second Peter, let's get into God's Word this morning. Second Peter chapter 2, looking at verses 4 through 9. Peter writes, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. The title of my message this morning is Destruction or Deliverance. Hashtag, which side are you on? Let's pray. Don't be laughing at my hashtags. I saw you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time this morning to be able to just gather together and to be in your word and knowing, Lord, that every time we gather and open up your word, your Holy Spirit is present to teach us and instruct us in your ways. And in your word. And so we pray that we would have open ears to receive, to understand what you have for us today, and then apply it to our lives as we leave this morning. So we thank you for this time we committed to you. Lord, if there's anyone here that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, Lord, they've not turned from their sin and turned to you. They're not born again yet. Would you especially touch their heart and help them to see their need for you, Lord, and the peace and the joy that comes from having that relationship with you. So bless our time together, we pray. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I've already always enjoyed the story about uh, a man that sent in this, his, his story into a radio talk show from a dad who had a 16-year-old daughter. And he writes this. He says, I believe strongly that a protective, loving, supportive, non-abusive dad should be in every daughter's life. I've worked hard these last 16 years to be these things. However, in the last couple of years of my life, my life has become more difficult. Boys have entered my daughter's life, and I've had to create rules for them to live by. I actually have given these to four separate boys. I'm a six foot three, 220-pound police officer, and it's amusing to watch the boys read these rules. They try to figure out if I'm kidding or not. My daughter takes all, all this in good humor and enjoys the support. I hope you enjoy this. Rules to date my daughter, Stephanie. Rule number one. My daughter's name is Stephanie. 
Her name is not Mama, Huchi, Babe, or any other name currently in the vocabulary area of your age group identifying young woman. With her permission, you may call her by her nickname, Sam. If I hear any of these other terms used to refer to my sweet girl, you will get an immediate response from me, her father. Rule number two, I am Stephanie's father. You can call me Sir. This is as, yes, sir, no, sir, I wouldn't think of it, sir. And I'll remember that good advice, sir. Rule number three, do not touch my daughter in front of me as it may provoke an uncontrollable and probably, probably over-aggressive response on my part. You may glance at her as long as your glances are from the neck up. Rule number four. When a woman says no, it means no. However, however, when Stephanie says no, it means if you do not stop immediately what you are doing, I will tell my daddy, and very soon, when you are alone and least expect it, he will be standing behind you in the dark with a grin on his face, waiting for you to turn around so you, you and he can have a friendly chat. Rule number five. If you stop in front of my house and honk, you had better be delivering a pizza. If, you, if I learn that you are honking for my daughter, I will come out and twist off your honker. <laughs> also be aware that I will be observing to see if Stephanie opens her own car door. I open the door for my mother my wife, my daughter, and any other woman who gets in my car. You should do the same. However, if I get into your car, please do not open my door. Rule number six. I'm aware that it's considered fashionable for boys of your age to wear their trousers so loosely that they appear to be falling off their hips. Please don't take this as an insult, but you and all your friends look like complete idiots. Still, I want to be fair and open-minded about this issue, so I Propose this compromise. You may come to the door with your underwear showing and your pants ten sizes too big, and I will not object. However, in order to ensure that your clothes do not, in fact, come off during the course of your date with my daughter, I will be taking my electric nail gun and fastening your trousers securely in place to your waist. <laughs> Number seven, when you meet me for the first time, please do not be uncomfortable if I stare at you. I'm only doing this so I can cement the memory of what you look like into my mind. This is, of course, in case I have to come after you for violating one of my rules. I would hate for there ever to be a case of mistaken identity involving an innocent bystander. A couple more. Number eight. Please bring my daughter back home in the same shape she's left in. Drive carefully. Protect her from drunks and obnoxious people. Do not coax her to dry, try drugs or alcohol. Always be ready to use your body to get between her and any objects flying in her direction. Also, I expect her clothing to come back in the same condition it left in. You should know that I will not react well if I saw even one grass stain on any portion of her clothing. Number nine, Stephanie will always have a specific time in the evening when I expect her to be home. To be home, please take this curfew, curfew seriously because I will not be able to sleep until I know she has safely returned home. If you bring her home too late or, God forbid, the next morning, the camouflage face looking in the window of your car will be mine. Last comment from Dad. Young man, if you're still here after reading these rules, you must really care for my daughter. This is the way to get me on your side. Seriously, there is only one rule. This one rule is simply that you care for my daughter as much as I do. I like that a father's expressing his heart for his daughter, wanting her to find someone who will care for her as much as he does. Also showing that it's a serious thing to him that should anyone try to violate her in any way. Listen, God's heart is the same towards His people. 
He's looking for shepherds who would have that same heart towards his people. Those who would care for his people and, and, and the way that he does. And he gets angry. He's not happy with those who would violate them and take advantage of them. In fact, Scripture warns us, as we're going to look at this morning, judgment will come. See, here in 2 Peter chapter 2, we see God's heart towards false teachers against those who fleece the flock of God to take advantage of them. And we're going to look at three characteristics of a false teacher, or rather, we looked at three characters of a false teacher last Sunday. We saw that they secretly brought in destructive heresies. And we looked at the ten kind of heresies going around in the church today. We also saw, number two, they denied the one who bought them, denying Jesus as God, the deity of Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, last time, they were motivated by greed, and we talked about the, uh, you know, the, the, the churches that are out there in the prosperity doctrine and that such. And we left off with Peter telling us in verse 3, for a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. In other words, they may think that they're getting away with it. They may think that they're getting by. But there's going to come a time when God is going to judge. I've shared this before. The last person on earth that I would ever want to be is that person who has pushed this heresy and pushed false teaching and then standing now before Almighty God on Judgment, game, on, on judgment Day. Because to know the truth and reject it is bad enough. But to know the truth and then to deliberately teach heresies and to teach lies and to teach people to follow after them, I am convinced that there's a, there's a special place in hell for people doing such things. Unimaginable. See, Peter here saw no hope for these apostates. Their doom was sealed. His attitude is so much different than those who, who, who today, that, that, you know, they, they just push for, for tolerance. Everything. Oh, we just need to be tolerant. And, and they're not that bad. No big deal. All roads lead to God. Well, you're right. All roads do lead to God. Where upon your arrival, you'll either be welcomed into heaven because you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, or you'll be turned around and sent to hell because you've rejected what Jesus Christ has done for you upon the cross. You'll hear those words, depart from me, I never knew you. The bottom line is judgment will come, especially to those who claim to be speaking and teaching for the things of God, but are not. And Peter is making it clear that these false teachers had forsaken the right way, which means simply they were going the wrong way. They forsook and they stopped and they turned and went the other way. So Peter says that the Lord has reserved the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment in verse 9. In other words, there's going to be a day of reckoning for them. But the good news is, in the beginning of verse 9, the Lord, he says, the Lord says, knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. So that's what we're looking at this morning. Two different things, destruction or deliverance. And that's going to be our two points this morning. Number one, God has reserved destruction and judgment. Number two, God has reserved deliverance and grace. Just got to see what side we're on. Number one, God has reserved destruction and judgment. Now, Peter in verses four through six gives us three examples that he's proven that he's judged in the past. He will judge in the future. He's going to give us the example of the fallen angels of A, that B, the fallen world, and C, Sodom and Gomorrah. First, the fallen angels. Look at verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. What Peter's talking, what rather, what is Peter talking about when he says uh, the angels who sinned? Well, I think to understand that, we need to go back to the book of Genesis chapter 6. 
verse 4. You can turn there if you want, but, but I'm going to put these verses up on the screen. Genesis 6, verse 4 tells us that there were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those are the mighty men who are of old, men of renown. That Hebrew word uh, translated giants is Nephilim, which literally means fallen ones. The fallen ones, as we read, are legendary figures spoken of in many cultures as giants. So where do these giants come from? Well, two schools of thought. Some suggest that the terms daughters of men refer to the descendants of Cain, and because of the union of the ungodly daughters of Cain and, and the godly sons of Seth would, would not inherently produce giants, there has to be another explanation. Well, you wouldn't get, get giants from that, that explanation. Interesting, the term sons of God in Genesis 4 is the word benai Elohim. So that's what the son of God means. So every time the word benai Elohim appears in the Old Testament, it is a reference to angels. Now we know angels are divided into two groups. You have the exalted angels around the throne of God who do the work of the Lord. Then you have the fallen angels or, or demons. Lucifer was an exalted angel who, you know, had some eye problems. He thought he could be like God and be better than God and lift up his God. And, and he's got, he led a rebellion against the Lord in heaven. He fell and, and became Satan of the devil. Revelation tells us one third of the angels uh, joined his rebellion and became demons, fell with them. I believe some of these demons that Genesis 6 verse 4 refers to and who according to Jude verse 6 speak of the same thing. Jude verse 6 tells us, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved an everlasting change under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Two different verses kind of leading the same way. Now some say Genesis chapter 6 verse 4 teaches that these demons... These fallen angels came to the earth, had sexual relations with the daughters of men, and produced these giants. Now, there's some good Bible scholars that, that teach this. Now, I have a bit of a problem with that because of what Jesus said. Jesus said in Matthew 22:30 that angels fallen or not were not given in marriage. In other words, not capable of, of sexual relations. Now, what makes more sense to me and, and as others that have, have fallen in this category is that these fallen angels, these demons, left their proper domain, as Peter, Peter talked about. They came to the earth prior to the flood, possessed real human beings, moving them to interbreed with the daughters of men. And so they produced this super breed, rather superior breed, whose offspring were the giants as a result of a type of selective breeding through demonic possession. We certainly know demonic possession is real. We see throughout scriptures that's something that affects. Now let's put the two together. It was common prior to the flood for a person to live 900 years. Adam lived 930 years. Jared 962. Methuselah, which named mean you know it'll end after the flood. You know he lived 969 years. Think about that. It would be very easy to produce a race of giants over a few hundred years. We know Goliath was nine foot nine inches tall. Imagine the evilness going on in the world of these demon-possessed giants, 10, 12, 13 feet tall. So I believe Peter's talking about the evilness that was spread about by these demons, these angels who sinned and as a result produced these demon-possessed giants. Again, if these demons that I believe are, are the ones being held for special judgment according to Jude 6 and here at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. 
That's why Peter says, God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell. Now, this word for hell is the word Tartarus, and it refers to a dungeon chamber. So these angels are changed, chained in darkness in, in, in a dungeon of tartar sauce, all mixed together. Horrible place to be. No, it's not tartar sauce. Tartarus, which, you know, again, it's probably a special compartment of hell where these, these, this pit of darkness awaiting final judgment. Now, on a side note, Revelation talks about and I believe that God is going to use, use these guys as a part of a judgment in the Christ during the tribulation period. And you can read about these demon locusts coming from the bottom of this pit coming out and, and striking men on the face of the earth. Revelation chapter 9. Be that as it may, I don't think it's necessary to try to understand every aspect of this verse in order to get the main message. Peter saying, God judges rebellion and will not spare those who rejected his will. Those, those angels... You know, however they did it, he, he, the judgment is going to come. If God judged angels, then he's certainly going to judge these false teachers. So that's the first example he gave us, fallen angels. The second, the second one he, he gives us is the fallen world. Look at verse 5. God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, of, people a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So, so the second illustration Peter uses to prove that God is going to judge the false teachers, he brings up... Uh, the ancient world. The ancient world is that time before the flood with Noah, and, and we know the generations following Adam had become exceedingly sinful. Mankind had grown worse and worse. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, tells us that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God acted in judgment, acted only what he could do. He intervened in the affairs of men. Peter says in verse 5, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Judgment came. The earth was corrupt before God, filled with violence. People were living in gross sexual immorality, murder, cruelty, lust, injustice abounded. Sounds like the nightly news on, on TV. I, you know, we'll, we'll look at more of this in a moment. But, but again... Peter's saying, God did not spare the, the judgment against the angels who sinned. Now he's not to not spare the judgment against the ancient world. Then his third example, the last example he gives in, in verse 6, Sodom and Gomorrah. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with, to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. He tells us here that his judgment came against Sodom and Gomorrah. He tells us that the Lord turned them into ashes. We know Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 50, the Lord says, And they were haughty and committed abomination before me, therefore I took them away as I saw fit. Now we know their sin was gross sexual immorality, pride. Even today the term Sodomite has a connotation of gross and uh, evilness and perverse. So Peter's telling us, don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah, how homosexuality flourished in that society. God brought about judgment upon them, completely wiping out those cities, wiping them off the face of the earth. Listen, if you want to live that lifestyle, people in that lifestyle, they need to know that judgment is going to come. But notice that the scope of, of, of God's judgment in all three of these examples, it's huge. I mean, he judged the fallen angels. There, there's none too lofty that will not be judged. He judged the ancient world during the time of Noah because the wickedness of man was so continuous. 
And finally, he judged Sodom and Gomorrah and their sexual sins. None are too base to be judged. All came under God's judgment. And in the same way God will judge these false teachers, they will not escape. That's why Peter says all these examples in verse 6 are for those who would live ungodly. He said in verse 9, God has reserved the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And it, it's interesting, as we see these things, we recognize, maybe perhaps you do, remember the words that Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 37. He said concerning the days of Noah, he said, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, judgment is coming, and it's going to come just like it came during the days of Noah. Like Noah, you and I were end-time believers. Noah lived before the flood. We lived before the flood of fire. Noah spoke of the coming rain. We speak of the coming rain of Jesus Christ. And just as it was in Noah's day, so will it be in the day that Jesus returns. What was it like in Noah's day that compares to ours? Well, let me give you four parallels between Noah's day and ours day. Number one, as I mentioned already, during Noah's day, the wickedness of man was, was great and his thoughts were evil continually. I don't encourage you, but all you've got to do is watch a, a TV late night host talk and do their opening monologue. And it's filled with all sorts of perversity and, and sexual innuendos. And, and we see the heart of man today, just evil continually. And, 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 and we see the same thing. And that's why God saw the heart of men at that time was only evil continually. And he lovingly decided to put them out of their misery. Number two, the days of Noah, there was a population explosion. Genesis 6, 1 tells us that it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. Think about this again. Men living to 900, 1,000 years old, you know, there's probably 5 to 6 billion people on the planet just prior to the time of the flood. We have some 7.6 billion people living in our world today. Let me give you another example. In the days of Noah, again, Genesis 6-4 tells us that abnormal, immoral sexual activity was on the rampage. And we see it happening over and over today. Things that were unthinkable a generation ago are now commonplace and are accepted, even pushed and promoted. Now, if you stand up against it and say, no, I disagree with that, the Bible says something differently, you could be even arrested for that. In fact, I recently, or this is recent, uh, an article about a Christian evangelist in Scotland that was accused of a hate crime and locked up in a cell after preaching from the Bible to a gay teenager. The article says this, Gordon Lamore, 42, was charged by police after telling the story of Adam and Eve to a 19-year-old who asked him about God's view on homosexuality. The street preacher referred to the book of Genesis and stated that God created Adam and Eve to produce children Within minutes, he was marched to a police van, accused of threatening or abusive behavior, aggravated by prejudice related to sexual orientation. The father of one spent a night in custody and faced a six-month ordeal before a sheriff cleared him of any blame. It's happening today. This is now. Preachers are told they cannot teach the Word of God from the pulpit if they're condemning the homosexual lifestyle. Well, the Bible teaches that. So I can be accused of a hate crime right now. We don't hate homosexuals. We simply believe that the lifestyle choice, and it is a choice, is wrong. And we believe the Word of God says that and condemns that lifestyle. It's not natural and it comes with consequences. Why aren't they teaching our young people that the homosexual lifestyle will result in disease and death? 
that the HIV virus and the destruction of the immune system is a result of that lifestyle. So they don't want to teach that. They'd rather promote it. And we see this is a moral sexual activity is rampant. But listen, so is, is murder. We're offering us up our children to, to the God of greed, the God of convenience and of money. We've aborted over 60 million babies in America since the decision in Roe versus Wade was, Wade was written. That doesn't even include the babies that have been murdered in China just for the sake of population control. Or how many are gone just because of, of just all over the world. Hitler has nothing on us. He only murdered 6 million Jews. He could learn a thing or two from Planned Parenthood. Number four, in Noah's day and in our day, Genesis 6.11 says, violence filled the earth. I don't know if you caught the earth, the earth, the, the news this morning. They're reporting that a poison gas uh, was released in near a city near Damascus in Syria on Saturday that killed at least, at least 40 people by poison gas. According to Newsweek, Chicago is known for having the highest number of homicides in the United States, over 500 homicides in 2017. Now, the good news, it's down 200 since 2016. But again, all you need to do is watch the evening news and you see it all over. Violence fills our screens. We not only see it in our society, we actually celebrate it. I mean, look at the movies that are out. Everything is, is, is violence in the, in the movies. Look at the sports that are out today. The you know, ultimate fighting, you know, it, seeing who can beat each other to a pulp before, you know, before they give. Now, thankfully, we, we've not reached the extent seen at the times of the gladiator games in Rome where they kill each other, but we still have our own violent outlets. Jesus said it would be like that as it was in the times of Noah, right before he returns in judgment. Jesus also pointed out that in the days of Noah, they were totally oblivious to the pending judgment of God that was about to fall. Matthew chapter 24 Verse 38 and 39, Jesus said, For in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, business as usual. You know, people today in the world, they're not aware of any judgment coming. They're giving in marriage and not marrying. You know, they're eating and drinking and, and same, same thing. How little does our world realize how close we really are to the day of God's wrath and God's judgment? So Peter here is telling us when it comes to false teachers, expect judgment. And just as God judged the fallen angels and the fallen world and Sodom and Gomorrah, God is still judge and he will bring judgment to this world. Now what about the righteous? What happens to them? I'm glad you asked because we have good news and that's point number two. God has reserved deliverance and grace. Look again at verse 9. Peter says, And the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Don't you just love that verse? No matter how bad our world is getting, it's good to know that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of it. No matter how bad things are going to get upon this earth, God has promised that for us as believers, we'll not have to, have to face a judgment that will come upon this earth as described in Revelation as a great tribulation period. A well-known verse we've shared many times, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9 and 10, For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, live or die, we should live together with Him. I love that. Let's go back now at a few of these verses, and look at the Lord's deliverance and grace 
And I want to do that by comparing Noah and Lot, because Peter does this. And ask the question, who do you want to be more like? Do you want to be more like Noah, or do you want to be more like Lot? God spared them both, and only because of his grace. Go back to verse 5. We read that God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness. And then in verse 7 we read that God delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for the righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. No one lot. Both good examples for us as last day believers. We can learn from them because both of them lived at the time in a place right before judgment from God came and we, we live in the same time and place. Noah was saved uh, you know, from the flood. Lot was saved from, from uh, fire and hailstorm coming down. Two men were a lot alike living in his last days. Both were saved both were described as just men, but that's where the comparison ends. First, let's look at Noah. Again, in verse 5, God saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness. Genesis 6, verse 8, gives us a little more information about Noah. It says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I like that. Now, Noah was a sinner just like the rest of us. His sin separated uh, him from God just like all of ours did. The, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. So Noah deserved to die like the rest of the world. But, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And I love that phrase. When the rest of the world turned their backs on the Lord and wandered far from the Lord, Noah kept his eyes on the Lord and found grace in the eyes from his Lord. It's been said, if you look to the Lord with an eye of faith, God will look down upon you with an eye of grace. Noah experienced God's unmerited favor. That's what grace is. I love the story about two pastors who were on their way to Atlanta, Georgia for a large Christian men's gathering. One of them had never been to the South before. After staying in a motel overnight, they stopped at a nearby restaurant for breakfast. When their meal was delivered, the pastor who had never been to the South before saw this white, mushy-looking stuff on his plate. When the waitress came by again, he asked her what it was, and she replied, it's grits. To which he said, ma'am, I didn't order it, and I'm not paying for it. Sir, she said, down here, you don't order it, and you don't pay for it, you just get it. Listen, that's just how the grace of God is for us. God's grace, unmerited, undeserved favor upon our lives. You don't deserve it, you can't earn it, it's God's grace. And we're so thankful for God's grace, that we don't have to face the judgment of God. But the first thing we want to note about Noah is that he was a recipient of the grace of God. After this grace in his life, we also read in, in Genesis 6, verse 9, that Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. He was perfect in his generations. That doesn't mean he was sinless perfection, but he was perfect in his, in his, in his sincerity. He, he was sincere. He was faithful in his generation. He went against the grain. I mean, you know, he swam against the tide. He lived amidst this wicked and perverse generation, but he continued to love God and keep his eyes on the Lord. It was a time when it was not popular to believe in God or walk with God. Yet, Noah stood strong. He was faithful in his, in his generations. You know, it's pretty easy for us to, to name the name of Christ and, and to be a Christian when we gather together on Sunday morning and Wednesday night in a Bible study and we're around for other, other believers. And it's easy for us. Man, we get out into the world. 
we get into our, our workplace and, and it can be more difficult to stand up for your faith in Jesus Christ where no one else does. But I think about, about our Lord and I think about what He's done for me in standing up for me, standing up for us, going all the way to the cross, dying on the cross for our sins, you know, going through all what He put up for it, to be faithful in the long haul. How easy it should be, how we should not even think twice about standing strong for the Lord. You know, I know it would be so much easier for us all if the Lord just took us home as soon as we got saved. Wouldn't that be great? Oh, man, we're in heaven. That's awesome. But that's not the way the Lord has for us. He has us here for a purpose. And it's not how we start that matters. It's how you finish that counts. Many people start out fast. Oh, I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to serve the Lord. And and then it gets tough and they quit. I've said this many times. The Christian walk isn't a hundred-yard dash. It's a marathon. It's not how you start. It's how you finish that matters. Noah walked with God in verse 9 of Genesis 6. He lived in fellowship with God. He lived in communion with God. It was his constant care to conform himself to the will of God to please him. We can do the same thing to live like Noah did. In fact, verse 22 of Genesis 6 tells us that Noah did everything exactly as God has commanded him. Man, I know we don't do that. We certainly can strive for that. But listen, although Noah had never seen rain, he didn't know what rain was. And though he knew it would be ridiculed, he believed what God said and and, and did what he asked. He he built an ark. Noah's faith is seen throughout this whole story. He believed the word of God and acted upon it. Listen to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. It says this, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. In fact, Hebrews there says that Noah prepared an ark for the saving of his household. Look at this. If you look at the genealogy of Noah, he began his project before his sons were even born. Before he had a household. I mean, they were born when Noah was 500 years old. Kind of a late start to having kids. I'm 500, I think I'll have some kids. But the ark was completed at 600 years. We know that it took 120 years to build the ark. So the kids, so he started the ark 20 years before his kids were even born. But he, he, he built that boat and made room for his sons and their wives before they were born. See, that's faith. Believing what God said he was going to do. Noah was planning ahead. Lastly, 2 Peter 2, verse 5, we're told that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. For the 120 years that Noah was building the boat, he was calling people to repent, to turn, to get saved. How many people got saved? Seven. Mrs. Noah and her three sons and their wives. Let that encourage those of you that that are actively sharing your faith. You see, even with only seven saved, Noah's name is still written in, in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Great men and women of faith listed there. Great man of God. Now let's look at Lot, and we'll close off with Lot. Let me say first of all that Lot is not listed in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. In fact, Lot's epitaph could read, a saved soul but a wasted life. Yeah, Lot escaped judgment, and Peter calls him righteous Lot, and that Lot also found graces in the eyes of the Lord. Yeah, Lot believed in Jehovah God, and it's for that reason he's referred to in, in verses 7 and 8 of Second Peter that, that God delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. 
says, For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Lot had faith in the Lord, but that's about as far as it went. His uncle Abraham, we know, was a friend of God, but Lot had no such title. And, and Abraham, like Noah, walked with God, but Lot radically, radically backslid. Let's close with looking at Lot's downfall. There's four steps to his backsliding. All began with the conflict he had between Abraham and, and Lot's servants, and they realized that it was time to separate. Abraham said, listen, I'll go one way, you can go the other. Lot, you choose what you want away, you go and I'll go the opposite way. Listen to Genesis 13.10. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go towards Zoar. Lot's first step downward, his attraction to the world. Notice it says there, like the land of Egypt. What's, it, what's Egypt in the picture of the Bible? It's a picture of the world. The plain of Jordan, or Sodom and Gomorrah, was at that time the place to be. It was luxurious. It was like, like the, the garden of the Lord, it says there. I mean, it was a capital of wealth and luxury and, and power and perversion. A lot looks at it and says, that's a place where I want to live. A lot wanted to go and live in a place that was just like the world. Maybe, you know, a fun place to live, but a lousy place for raising a family. Maybe a good place for making a living, but a lousy place for making a life. This brings us to step number two of Lot's downfall. He moved near the city. Genesis thirteen twelve tells us that Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. Wasn't bad enough that he chose it, wanted to live near it. Now he's got his tent pitched facing towards the city so he can see the city lights. Maybe like being right outside Las Vegas and seeing all the lights there and all the glitter and all the, the stuff going on there. And oh, I just want to just want to see the city. I don't want to participate in that. I just want to see it. People have that same attitude today. I'm not going to participate in that. I know what's wrong. I'm just going to look. Well, I'll never commit adultery. I just want to think about it a little bit. Well, well, when I'm on the internet, I just like to look at the pictures, but but it doesn't affect me. No, you can't look without it affecting you. Because that brings us to Lot's third downfall. Number one, he was attracted to the city, to the world. Number two, he moved near the city. Number three, he moved into the city. Genesis chapter 14, 12 tells us. Went from the outskirts to the inside of this wicked city. Man, that's a way of sin. Longing for, moving closer to you. Now living in the midst. And he might have had some excuses. Well, you know, it's just more convenient. It's closer to the grocery store. I don't have to drive so far and near the restaurants. And I like the bright lights and all the shows and, and we're going to travel on cost. And we're not, you know, doing, doing that all the time. But to see at this point, Lot is on the verge of being totally pulled in, even though God gives him a wake-up call. And that's a fourth step to his downfall. Lot ignored God's warnings. The kings came in and they besieged the city and Lot and his family were taken captive plus all their goods. And at that point, Lot should have said, you know, I should get the clue. God is pulling me out of here. I shouldn't be here. But that was the furthest thing from his mind. You know, God often gives us wake-up calls as we're heading down a path that we shouldn't be headed down. And the question is, do we listen? Yeah, Lot was rescued by his uncle Abraham, but does he leave? Does he wake up? No, he goes deeper in. Because the next thing we see of Lot, he is now sitting in the gates 
of Sodom. You know, the gates were the leaders that they were the leaders of the community. That's where the judges were. So Lot now is in the place of being one of the judges for this city. Man, we see his downfall. Psalm 1-1 tells us the same thing. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Lot started, Lot started walking towards Sodom. Then he started standing, looking. Man, now he's sitting in the seat of the scornful. Sitting in the gates. Think he's happy? Think he's, oh man, this is where I want to be? Do you think that brought him joy? No, oh, because we know the answer back in Second Peter, verse 7 and 8. Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for the righteous man dwelling among them, tormented his righteous soul from day to day, seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. He was tormented, oppressed, day in and day out. That word oppressed means to be worn down to toil. He started thinking, I'm going to be refreshed. This looks like a great place to be. Blessed with the abundance, the riches, the pleasures of this world. And he left worn down, oppressed, and tormented. In fact, Peter says his, tormented, his soul was tormented from day to day. Here's the thing I want us to know about Lot. Lot lived this oppressed and tormented life of sin, of Sodom. But it was his own fault. It was his own choosing. He didn't have to live in that place. He chose to live there, and it was miserable. And let me tell you, that's the case for those who try to live with one foot in the world and one foot with the Lord. You have too much of the Lord to really enjoy the, the world and too much of the world to really enjoy the Lord. What a miserable place to live. And we know the rest of the story. The angels show up and tell Lot that judgment is coming. Sodom and Gomorrah is going to be destroyed. So Lot goes to get his two daughters and their husbands, only to have them laugh at him. He ends up taking his wife and two daughters with him to escape until Mrs. Lot looks back and becomes a lot of salt, a pillar to be exact. She was longing for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a tragic story. But what is true of Lot can be true of us if we try to live with one foot in the world and one foot with the Lord. This, this world is going to impact us. It's going to impact our children. But if we go against the grain, make us stand like Noah did, live righteously, there's going to be a better chance of our kids growing up and doing the same. Yeah, Lot's story is tragic. And yes, the Lord called Lot righteous because he believed in the Lord. But he didn't walk with the Lord as he should have and, and as he could have. And so in the end, what you had was a saved soul, but a wasted life. Now somebody said, well, well, at least he made it to heaven. It seems like he got the best of both worlds. Not really. Remember, I mean, he was oppressed and he was tormented while he was on, on the earth. And he gets to, the, to heaven and, and he has no rewards because he hadn't lived for the Lord. People say, well, you know, I don't care. I won't worry about it. You will when you get to heaven. Listen, God's judgment for the lost and repentant sinner is going to come. It's just a matter of time. We as, as Christians need to decide how we want to live the remaining of our time here on this earth. Like Lot or like Noah. The, the choice is ours. Yeah, they both experienced the grace of God, but when they stood before the Lord, one had an abundance entrance while the other got there, no doubt, smelling like smoke. Oh, okay, Lot, I'm glad you're here, but you know. God's people, as weak as they are, will be delivered from judgment by, by the grace and the mercy of God. We will be. Remember, God could not judge Sodom and Gomorrah until Lot and his family were out. He could not judge the ancient world until Noah and his family were out. And I believe that God is going to send his wrath upon this world. 
But it won't be until he takes his church out. And again, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10, God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, whether we wake or sleep, live or die, should live together with him. The big question is, are, are we ready? Destruction or deliverance, which side are we on? The Lord knows how to deliver the ungodly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, I encourage you, don't wait. We're close to the Lord coming back. You want to be able to come and spend eternity in heaven, have your sin forgiven now, and to live that abundant life now. Come to Him this morning. Give your life to Him. He'll come into your heart. He'll, he'll cleanse you. He'll forgive you of your sin. And He'll give you that abundant life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time this morning. We thank You, Lord, for some of these scriptures, Lord, that they may be hard for us to understand, but we get your point given to us through your Holy Spirit, and that is we know judgment is going to come. Oh Lord, we know that those that love you and know you were not appointed to that judgment that you're going to bring. And we thank you for that, Lord. And we do pray for those that we love, those that are lost, that they would turn from their sin and they turn to you. And I do pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that is lost still, that they would not stay lost, that they would turn to you this morning, have their sin forgiven, and be born again today. Lord, help us to walk as Noah walked, Lord, to be men and women of righteousness, Lord, standing up in this fallen world, not putting up with, Lord, the things that we hear, Lord, having a choice to turn, turn off the TV, to walk away, to not listen to those things that are out there. By the strength of your Holy Spirit living and working in us, Help us to glorify you in all that we do, all that we say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.